What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 38 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll hear from Cameron of Sunfire Farms. We'll talk about his recent pheno hunt, the gradual process of incorporating new genetics into his garden, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. A big thank you to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon. Through their support, we're able to continue bringing you the podcast. So shout out to them. If you would ever like to support the podcast, grab some stickers, join our Discord chat, or listen to additional interviews, you can find us at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. You can also find the link directly through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or visit our new website, thehashishin.com. Shout out to another big reason we're able to keep bringing you the podcast, our sponsors, especially our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com where you can find everything that you need to make rosin, including rosin bags, pre-presses and parchment. And of course, what I feel is the best kept secret in hash making, their accurate, reliable, full mesh wash bags, the best deal in hash in my opinion. So whether you need wash bags or rosin bags, along with the best customer service in the game, you can find it all at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram, rosinevolution100, and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our sponsors and homies, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company, who you can visit at powersplates.com, providing you the highest grade rosin press on the market, both inside and out. They made a drop a few weeks ago. And again, your support has been overwhelming. The last drop got scooped quickly. So thank you to everyone who grabbed a set of powers plates. Scott and Alex are hard at work getting you a new drop of their gold and black plates this week. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, specifically the best rosin press on the market, go to powersplates.com and don't forget to save $75 off all Powers Plate systems by using our savings code, the letters THI, at powersplates.com. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com, where you'll find all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin. It's cool meeting people out and about rocking Six Star gear like at Coffee and Donuts, because it's almost surely someone who's just as passionate about hash and someone that I can relate to in that sense. The guy behind Six Star Society is just as passionate about hash and design He keeps dropping dope designs like the NASA-inspired hash line, including those super comfy sweatpants, but they also make practical wear for hash makers like their waterproof star anorak jackets. So if you want to show your love for the resin, they have all the gear that you need from dab mats to beanies, t-shirts, and even art prints in collaboration with Eric Nugshots. Again, you can grab it all at sixstarsociety.com or at their Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society and save 5% on your entire order at sixstarsociety.com by using our savings code, the letters THI. And last but never least, again, introducing our newest sponsor, Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, 
who you can visit at RockyMountainHigh719.org. I've had a chance to meet Rocky a few times now. And part of the reason I'm excited to work with him is because I really value that he takes so much pride in taking care of his customers. Anyone I've ever talked to about their experience with Rocky has nothing but great things to say about their customer service and their genetics, which is another thing that I value in him is that he also really believes and stands behind the seeds that he's selling. He grows all the gear he has on his site. He's been doing some killer collabs himself, including the Cold Cure, which is Harry Palm's purple ice water crossed to Rocky's Hitman OG. He carries other well-respected breeders like in-house genetics. They recently dropped Altitude's Ranch Fatso lineup, and thankfully, he's decided to continue his generosity and is hooking up all Hashishian listeners for the next month with a 25% discount on all the seats on his site by using the savings code THI. That's a quarter of the price off your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org, including the Bloom Co. gear by using our savings code, the letters THI. And the last thing I'll say is I mentioned it a bit earlier, but we do have a new website, thehashishin.com, where you can find all the podcasts, join the community forums, find all our sponsors and their discount codes. So check us out at thehashishin.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am really excited to be here with Cameron of Sunfire Farms located in Ventura County, California. You can follow them on Instagram at Sunfire Farms or on his personal account, Cannabis.cam. What's up? How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, of course, dude. I'm stoked to be here. I wasn't expecting to make this trip out here, but I figured if I was out here, I should make you know use of my time. And That's so, awesome. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. It's funny, we... We're hanging out a little bit before and we were talking about the fact that we have a little bit of a kind of rapport already. We've spoken for maybe like a year, year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you definitely. did a soil panel, I think, with Ogre and Laughing Shaman. That's right. And then uh, you graciously toured us in your garden a little bit. Yeah. And showed people. So, so yeah, it's cool to finally meet you and like be here with you and take Thank some you time so with you. Stoked. Yeah, me too, man. So... People want to know where the Irie apricot is. When's it coming? Um, that one will be coming in about three months. We actually more about two and a half, two and a half months. I had like that first small drop of it. And there's kind of a funny story behind that. Yeah, that's why it's not going to be available for three months because I didn't really have expectations for that one. Sometimes you just kind of feel like something's not going to wash or not going to perform like you might want it to, but then you run it anyways. And it did awesome. And so I only had one small plant of it. So I've just been working on um, mothering it out. That's why it's taken a little longer for the next round of it to come to fruition. But yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. You were telling me a little bit about that earlier. We tried some of that mixed in with something else. What was it? That was the Tangy Cookie Burger. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that was a nice tasting mix. Thank you so much. And in reference to the apricot, like you said, it was a plant that you only had a small amount of space for, or you dedicated Mm -hmm. only a small amount of space because you didn't think based on the genetics that it came from, that it would be a washer. Exactly. And that caused you to only have a tiny little cut, which you told me you were pretty afraid. Yeah. You know, losing. Yep. 
So walk us through the process of getting now to being a couple months out from having a decent run of it again. For sure. So I started a little pheno hunt and it was going to be in a greenhouse and about half the greenhouse was all new strains, including the Irie apricot. Half of it was like some more stuff that I uh, could rely on that I've grown before um, that I have data on. Yeah. So I did, I think three other strains, but I grew the least of the Irie apricot because the other three strains had the most kind of potential, the, the, they were crosses that I felt like were going to be winners and would make like better hash yields and stuff I could, you know, potentially find keepers of. And then um, the Irie apricot, which is, that's my pheno that I named. It's actually a seed made by Cali Seed Bank Skunk House Genetics, which is straw lemons crossed to double burger. And straw lemons is a pretty unique cut. A lot of people think it's like a straw nana cross, but it's it's actually strawberry fields crossed to lemon lime orange apricot. So that's where the orange apricot comes in. So it's not like there's a bunch of apricot genetics in there, but it just comes through sometimes on certain phenos. So funny enough, sometimes you get really lucky and I only popped one female. Um, it just was a good looking one in veg. I was like, all right, I have 15 more plants to fill. I'll just throw them in there. If they don't wash, it's not going to be much of an L, but if they do wash, like I'll be stoked. So I just cut one little clone before, like right as they went into flower, just in case they performed. Cause like when you're pheno hunting, you always need to have cuts of what you're hunting to make, you know, choose that at the end to go back and kill it or to go mom that out if it's like your winner. So yeah, grew out the 15 plants and I just had a small wash worth it did great. The terps were really special and it just reminded me of apricot and I wanted to like name it something else than just apricot. So I was like, just trying to think and like the double burger kind of makes it a pretty potent, it's like a potent and also terpy strain. I feel like some really terpy strains aren't that potent. So I felt like it makes you feel iry. Like my dad always used to say like, I'm feeling iry. So uh, <laughs> I named it that. Cool. <laughs> but yeah. And what were the other three strains that were in there with it? Uh, other three strains was Big Papa, which is papaya crossed to modified banana. That's another skunk house strain. And then there was two of the double guava phenos, which is another double burger cross straw, straw guava to double burger. So I hunted like some double burger crosses this year and found some keepers. So, But you said you had already some experience with those or at least some prior data versus like um not on any of those so the, all those strains the irie apricot the two double guavafinos and the big papa that was half the greenhouse and the other half was papaya drip and jet fuel otter pops which i've been running for a little bit now so as like all right if those none of those do well i can still rely on these to you know have a nice little harvest so yeah right so the otter pops and the remembering what the other one was? Uh, so it was the jet fuel otter pops and then the papaya drip. Yeah. And so those before. are two kind of, like you said, that are in your stable. Yeah. I hunted those last use. year. So those are some of my go-to. So always got to plant some of those. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. It's always interesting to see the distribution and like, I feel like your other side is a little R and D, Yeah, you know, and, but, you know, relating back to the apricot, it's one of those Terps that when I came over, you had a few flavors out. And that was like the first one I wanted to try because uh -huh. 
it's not like a flavor you see very often. Totally. It's not like an easy note to hit almost yeah. in cannabis, I feel yeah. like. And you've been telling me that that's what you feel is one of the most important things. And it's something that we talk about, I feel like on the show a decent amount, mm-hmm. but is just having these unique profiles. And you were talking about that in reference specifically to being single source. So how do you see those two things intermingling? Yeah, well, with single source, you have like, obviously the ability to control pretty much everything that you're doing. So you can choose, you know, you don't have anyone else's input on what seed you can get. You can just go for whatever you want, whatever like vision you're going for. You can just do all that R&D yourself. And I just think that's pretty important to like do that work because like in such a market that's getting pretty saturated and there's a lot of people growing nowadays and there's a lot of rosin and there's a lot of flour. This applies to all markets of cannabis. I feel like is just having those unique strains that like people don't have or little people do have to like, you know, be unique and stay competitive and have your own vibe. And like, it's also like when you're super passionate about cannabis, it is like one of the most fun things like to do. Like if you like to grow and you haven't pheno hunted yet, like doing a pheno hunt is so much fun. It could also be just, you could also like take a pretty decent L, but you could also you know, benefit greatly from finding some really cool stuff. So it's just like really cool to see all that var- variation and like uniqueness. Cause like some crosses you just like expect something and you'll have a completely new flavor from the two parents that you don't even taste any of the parents, like this whole new thing. So it's just definitely worth it to devote. I think if you're a single source brand, at least a small like quarter of your garden to those type of projects. So let's talk a little bit about what you brought up in regards to genetics or a phenotype or an expression tasting like the lineage that it comes from versus it not. Mm -hmm. There's some profiles, even going through your page, you mentioned something like a papaya or like a GMO that's Mm -hmm. crossed into something. They're typically pronounced in their progeny if right I'm saying that yeah correctly. very prevalent in the profile yeah so what do you see in regards to that is that a common thing amongst a lot of the genetics that you work with where you see the mom and or the dad in these phenos more so and and the unique ones are the ones that are different than them or what what are you seeing yeah yeah i think it's more unique to have a pheno that doesn't uh, remind you of the parents, like something completely new. I definitely think that's more unique than just having something that's like a mix of the two or a dominant, like a GMO cross to papaya. That's a garlic juice. If anyone's familiar with that strain, but like I've tried a lot of different phenos of it. I've had some that are like straight papaya with a little bit of garlic, some that are all garlic and no papaya. So it's just, I think it's more rare to have something that's a good balance of the two. I feel like that's what you kind of like almost expect when you're like buying a pack of seed is like you expect a mix of the two. But a lot of times I think you're going to get more dominant of one in terms of like the turp profile. But like when you're washing, you could have the resin structure of one and the turp profile of another. So like if, for example, like one strain that doesn't wash very well, there's a bunch, but like let's just call one uh, like a gelato. 
and cross that to like something that does wash, let's say Strawnana. And like you could have a Strawnana resin structure that's really stable and big heads, but a gelato turf profile. And like that's kind of like what you, that's like a great thing, you know, to look for. And like you want to know what you're looking for going, going into it, I, I feel like. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. When you do a pheno hunt, you know, you see, Everybody has a number usually behind a pheno mm-hmm. of some kind. What does that mean for somebody who's unfamiliar with a pheno hunt? Yeah. So um, for anyone that's unfamiliar, a basic pheno hunt is like a pack of 10 to 12 seeds. So you'll pop all those seeds and label them. So um, you'll just label them 1 through 10, 1 through 12. Um, and that's how you keep track of the data throughout. So my fuel, like say a fuel, fuel pops, I did 12 seeds and I just labeled them one through 12 and the number nine ended up being the keeper. So um, I eliminated all those other seeds. So that's kind of how you keep, keep track of the data and of all those phenos. So. And then this is something we've also been kind of talking about when we've been hanging out is the naming of phenos. Right. And everybody seems to have a different opinion. So I'm curious on yours, when you find a pheno of a particular line what are your thoughts on that person being able to name that strain, for example? Yeah, I definitely think that this is just my opinion. Everyone definitely has their own. But I think when you're finding your own pheno, I think it's okay to call it something that isn't the name of the pack of seeds. Like if it's a, if the name of the pack of seeds is like, you know, gelato pops, like, and it doesn't necessarily taste or smell like anything like gelato pops. And it's something really different. I think you did the work and you found that pheno and it's okay to call it something that you think it smells or tastes like. That's how a lot of phenos and strains I feel like have came about. So yeah, that's kind of my take on that. Now, going back to the idea of combining these genetics to attain, let's say, a certain type of trichome structure. What has it been a genetic that has surprised you from, from its lineage, for example, that has been a washer? I know I already talked about the Irie apricot, but definitely the Irie apricot surprised me. Um, usually those like lemony orange type genetics tend to have like a really oily and smaller trichome head. But um, it, since it crossed into the double burger, even though there's not any like of those double burger chirps, that's a good example of that resin structure of the double burger because the double burger is very similar to GMO, which is a great washer translated to help that like profile just like actually work in the water. That was pretty cool. Another one that actually surprised me that was actually a negative was uh, Strawn Anna across the Grape Ape. That one was like one of the most iced out plants I've ever seen. And it had huge trichomes on it, but like when you touch the plant, it was like straight oil and wetness on your finger. I actually almost didn't want to wash those plants. I was like, I'm going to do something else with these, but I just wanted to see like how, like, all right, this is, I was like, I felt like it was going to do like a two to 1%, but I was willing to take that loss just because like they were some full-term plants and, and I wanted to just have that rosin. I felt like it would be really tasty and literally nothing came off of nothing came off of it. Like it was literally like a 0.001% wash. 
I got like three grams off of like 6,000. And it was just kind of funny. It was a little bit of a surprise, but it was also like, I was expecting it just not so bad. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, interesting because it was kind of in reverse, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Like the straw nana you yeah. think maybe would make, yeah. what was it? The great bape? Yeah. A and it's not all wins. Like I, I don't have a ton of space in my nursery. So like I really, I only do my pheno hunts with like 10 to 15 seeds. I, I don't ever pop like more than that just because I don't have the space. And the more seeds just kind of the, the more obviously work you need to do, especially with washing. It's like, it's not like you just need to hang the plants and it's not all based on like with flour. It's like, it's more based on like yield and back appeal and terps. But with, with washing, like you need to wash each and every pheno to get, get the terps and the profile. Like it, the flour could look not great, but it could have the best like resin and the best profile ever. So it's like, it's not really done until like you're dabbing it for like to get that info. I guess, I guess I get, I've gotten lucky with like doing that. We're doing the, the hunts because a lot of people say you need to, you need to hunt like a hundred seeds. But like nowadays there's so many amazing breeders doing the work for resin production and breeding for resin production that like you can really get a pack of 10 seeds and find a winner and like, I found multiple winners out of, you know, 10 to 12 packs, which is great. It's not always like that. There's definitely been packs that I haven't found anything, but like, it's pretty awesome these days that there's a lot of washing genetics to choose from. So. Yeah, it definitely feels like the ratios are kind of going up. Yeah. And you told me that you have only worked really with a few companies Mm -hmm. or, you know, a particular seed bank that carries a few companies, including Evermore. Yeah. And who was the other one? Um, yeah. So uh, I've been working with Cali Seed Bank, California Seed Bank, and uh, they vend a lot of different brand of seeds, well, a handful of a handful of brands. But the main two that I've been working with has been Evermore Genetics. He's up from Santa Cruz and then Skunk House Genetics. And yeah, I've just had great results from their stuff. They're both awesome, awesome dudes. So I've just been supporting them and uh, helping out with some little projects. Like I think we might hopefully do some breeding with the Irish apricot. That'll be pretty cool. I think to get some more of the, that chirp out with some other stuff, but um, yeah, those guys have been great. I've also done a little bit of stuff with uh, nine weeks harvest. That's where that papaya drip came from. So just those three companies crush it for sure. No. Yeah. That's cool. People are always interested to hear yeah. people that are Yeah, and that's just three. There's so many more companies that do awesome work. But so, what do you consider a washer now, percentage wise? I'd say uh, percentage wise, anything above four percent. I mean, threes are fine too. It just depends, like all on like your cost of inputs and everything. Like being single source, it's fine. It's it's a little bit more okay if I'm like hit a three percenter or you know, even a two, but like, I'd say in terms of keeping stuff around, like I'd like it to at least be hitting low to mid fours. Yeah. Low fours. <laughs> what are some of the higher numbers you've seen? Um, the higher numbers I've seen have been um, like the low sevens. And that's like the, that's like the grade of a lot of people do different numbers. Like some people do their percentage on like final rosin yield, or some people do their numbers on like the complete grams of hash they have, like including the 40, including all the way up to like the 190. I do it off my pressable like grade of hash plus like the full melt. So like the 70 to 159 
as well as the 90 to 159, like first wash, that's usually what I keep as the melt. And that's like what I do my, those numbers off of. So it's like 7%, you know, once I press that, it's like, you know, a little bit less in the, in the high sixes and same with, you know, always gets down a little, a little bit less after you press it, but. Right. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point that you're right. People do look at that differently. So I appreciate you totally clarifying how you view that. Yeah. And some people press everything and some people like a lot of people are, are actually just pressing everything and not making any full melt. Most brands are mainly producing rosin. And then when you are producing melt, like usually that first wash 90 or 120 or however you prefer to do it is staying as melt. So like it's not getting pressed. So kind of does change the yield slightly, but not too much. Right. Yeah. That percentage. Going back to the idea of needing to process the material to see what you have after a wash. Uh-huh. Have you found success in being able to somewhat determine that while the plant is alive by touching the resin? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a lot of hands-on when it's like seeing those new strains and knowing how that feels like, yeah, people can tell you like, yeah, it's going to be sandy or it's going to be oily, but like you still don't really know what that feels like until you've like touched a good amount of plants. I thought even up till this day, I I touched a plant that was like sandier than I've ever felt it. And it was like, I could literally see trichomes like on my hand like rolling around and it was like insane. That that was a 7% strain. So like, you know, it's always experience is, is the best thing for that. A lot of times if it's not feeling right, I'll probably like, if there's like maybe two or three phenols that are like, eh, these kind of feel oily. Like maybe I'll just mix wash them and, you know, just like, all right, these aren't the ones. Cause I think these two all, oh, they feel so great and like they grow great and they smell awesome. So like, I know it's going to make good hash and these are not performing like that. So I'll just mix wash them and not spend the time individually washing them when I know that they're going to be like less than 3% strains or less than two. And like, when it's that case, is that basically you're just doing that to make a product out of it almost where like there's enough of this mixed material yeah. to make something Yeah, worthwhile. and that's the thing, like, with those pheno hunts, like, it takes time to, like, get to that final one. Like, sometimes people just mix wash every pheno, and then they run them separately after that, just to, like, some people don't have enough clones. It takes a lot of time to, like, build up the mothers of each one and get an army of cuts, or even an army of cuts of enough of the individual phenos to run it. It's kind of like you just um, winging it process almost like you kind of just go with your intuition. Yeah. Right. And, you know, not to kind of beat a dead horse with the iry apricot, but Uh that kind of played a role in that where, like you said, you have a small room for mothers and clones and you had to kind of like bring this into your system not thinking that it was going to do well. And it took like this whole process yeah. into making them into moms, into cuts, into yep. rotation. Right. Yeah. Cause I only had that. I was, I usually take, I don't like to have only one mother plant of my genetics. I like to have at least like two to three plants of each strain, just in case God forbid anything happens to the one plant something. And so I'll have like another one to grab clones off or just to keep growing. And, um, with the Irie apricot, I was like, yeah, no way. And I had like a little six inch clone that I was kind of like neglecting. And then 
I washed it. Like the right after I washed it, took my first dab. I was like, I'm going to the nursery. I transplanted it and foliar fed it and like watered it in and uh, like checked on it like three times a day and took a new cut off it right away. And yeah, cool. that's how it goes. Well, this is something I don't really think I've talked to anybody about specifically, but walk us through how you take a cut. Everyone does it differently. I'll either... I mean, I have a devoted mother room to all my strains. So I'll go on a plant and take as many as I need off of it. I'll usually take the top branches and it's like important to take cuts in the right spot. So the mom like grows properly after you take the cut. And I'll usually take them from my mother room or from like the greenhouse or a flower room indoor before they're about to flip. Um, Cause like when you're cleaning up plants, like you can get so many clones, you know, if you need some extras, that's like a great way to do it. And people have way, like a ton of different ways. I, like we were talking earlier, I started working at a clone nursery, like one of my first jobs in the industry. So I've cloned like pretty much every different way there has been from like aeroponically to like fully organic to with like literally just aloe and to like with salts and to like a combo of both. Yeah, you can get roots a bunch of different ways, but yeah, just plug it up in, in a dome and seven to 10 days later, ideally you'll start having roots and propagating those plants. And that goes into rock wool? Um, You can do it in rock wool. You can literally do it in soil. You can do it in like a peat moss type plug cube. It's like those black ones that you see, or you could do it like basically hanging in straight water. You could even just do it in a little cup, just at your windowsill. It'll eventually root, but can't do a hundred clones like that. <laughs> cool. Well, tell us a little bit more about this cloning experience you had. Oh yeah. With Clonville. Yeah. Um, so when I was 19, I got one of my first, my second job in the industry in studio city. It was at a dispensary slash clone nursery called Clonville, compassionate caregivers of studio city. And it's a pretty interesting place. Started there as like a bud tender and then I still had a little bit of experience with plants already because I was like already growing at my house and stuff. And uh, I transferred over to like the nursery side of things and eventually like started managing the nursery and took it over with another person. And I worked there for three years, but I was able to like learn a lot about plants and genetics and like nutrients in a short amount of time. Cause like, you know, a lot of people learn on their own time and takes like, years to learn a lot of these things and figure out how things work and how things don't. And like, so, um, I just kind of got like through it, thrown into it and I loved it. Yeah. That was my last job I've ever had <laughs> a nine to five job. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. But you also told me that prior to you taking over, they had a lot of issues with the clones. What yes. were some of those issues? Oh my gosh. So when I worked there, it was managed by someone who was just not really caring about the plants at all. They were just really neglected, super nutrient locked out and just super deficient. And there was a bad amount of infestation, like mites. Like I saw like webs on top of some of the plants. I'm just saying that they're not even like a business anymore, but they did turn around. We did turn things around a lot. Like we, Basically, I mean, I actually got a little bit in trouble for this, but cause I like, I was in charge of the nursery at this point And I was like, dude, we need to throw everything away. And my boss didn't want to do it. 
Uh, he's like, okay, throw all these, except for these five plants. I'm like, all right, dude, I need to throw everything away. So I still threw away the five plants. I kind of got in some trouble. I kind of like put other plants there. Like it was, but it was for the, for the betterment of the company. I was like, yo, we're bringing fresh new plants in here. Why would we keep these other ones that are infested? And yeah, slowly but surely over a year, we like, shout out to my boy, Anthony, me and him definitely like bought it, got it more into shape and started getting good genetics in. And like, I remember I would like press rosin for people back in the day, like flower rosin and in the flower rosin days, I had a little, my low temp press, but yeah, it was, it was a good, good time for sure. Yeah. Like you said, it seemed to give you some experimenting time, but on the clock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was able to like have full control over the room. Like we converted it from full salts to organics. In my opinion, full organics is hard to do indoors producing moms. It's just, I feel like it's not as efficient as like maybe running some salts or something like that. It's a little more expensive also. Yeah, it was a lot of learning because we were doing that for a while. And then we were running like a mix of both. We had like sections off of soil and sections off of cocoa. And it was just like, kind of a lot but it taught me a lot about like the industry and how things work because we were also dispensary so I was great I was grateful to find that find that job on Craigslist (laughs) (laughs) you never know yeah well cool man I think this is a good opportunity for for smoke break awesome let's do it all right Shout out to our sponsors and homies, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company who you can visit at powersplates.com. I call them small batch because not long ago they used to only make plates for the local homies and as custom orders. And now they're offering you the best rosin press on the market. Again, at powersplates.com. They're made in the USA. They're built and tested one by one by Scott in his garage using the best parts that he can find, including top of the line components that learn your patterns of use to make themselves more efficient. Not to mention they have the sleekest looking plates on the market, like their artistic series that they started last year and they will continue this year. So keep an eye out for those limited edition drops. They have some really cool things in the works that I can't wait to share with you this year. So if you're in the market for the highest grade rosin press on the market, visit them on Instagram at Powers Plates and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press. And don't forget to save $75 off all Powers Plate systems by using our exclusive savings code, the letters THI. THI saves you $75 at powersplates.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So you told me earlier that you consider yourself more of a grower than a hash maker. Why? Yeah, well, I definitely both. But I feel like I'm just so into growing and so passionate about like the plants. I feel like that's just kind of where I'm like driven towards. And I feel like, you know, once once you find your rhythm with the hash making and you define your process and you dial it in, yes, you can always be improving. But like, you know, once that's set in stone, the work is done, in my opinion, in the genetics and in the grow and just like being able to like, you know, control from seed to like jar from seed to slurp rather. No, I'm just kidding. It just proves to me like how important the grow process is. Cause like a dialed run will make the hash like that much better. 
the best hash, in my opinion, comes from really healthy plants. Good full melt that melts really well and, you know, is a pleasure to dab is like, that's the whole reason I kind of got into this is because I love smoke and melt. I think that's a huge factor in that is, of course, genetics, but also plant health. So I, I think that's why I kind of consider myself, you know, grower first, hash maker second. So a few points. One, you mentioned smoking hash and then like wanting to grow kind of for it. Yeah. Right. And I thought it was kind of funny. One of your posts, you brought up the fact that if you want to smoke a decent amount of hash, buying it at like market value is a hard thing to sustain. Yeah. Normal. Most people. The average American is going to not be able to do that. So growing (laughs) your own is the way to go. Yeah. And that's basically kind of what you did. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, when I was like, like I said, when I was pretty young, like 18, I like fell in love with, with hash and the, and the cannabis plant. I found YouTube videos like bubble man and hash church. And I started watching all those videos and just got me super inspired and stoked to kind of like be like them and grow my own and like be able to like share with my friends, like, yo, this is fire. And I grew it. and. I made it like, let's smoke it. And I just thought that was such a, honestly, like a really unrealistic, like not unrealistic goal, but it felt like a very far out goal. Like I feel like the growing process is very intimidating to people, especially at first, because there's so many different ways how to do it. And there's so many, just so many different ways. Like, I feel like there's no two grow rooms that are like identical almost to an extent. Yeah. So because of that, I just felt like, you know, kind of intimidated of the whole process so at first I, uh, I wanted to make hash, but growing was like, all right, we'll do that second. Like, let's find some material. I just kind of went around with my buddy and found some, uh, just some, literally some trim. We're just on weed maps, just looking at, you know, whoa, the hundred dollar ounce of shake, let's get it. And like, none of that washed at all. So I was like, okay, I need to start growing. I wanted to do it anyways, but I'm just like, Let's just dive into this because there's no other option. I had knew no, I didn't know anyone who like grew or no people who smoked. I just was just, you know, YouTubing it and wanted to do it. So um, that's kind of how I first made my, my first kind of like journey into the hash world was like YouTubing. <laughs> so when you first started growing, was your intention from the beginning to make hash? Yes. I bought a plant. I went to this, uh, I was telling you earlier that like sketchy random pop-up clone nursery um, off of Topanga Boulevard in the Valley and got a Larry OG plant that was like very, very yellow. And I was like, well, it's 10 bucks. Like I can't find any other plants. So I guess I'll just plant it. And that's when I also like, once I got the plant, I started like watching growing videos and like, I feel like the hash goes hand in hand with like the whole organics and living soil. Because when you're solventless, you're, some people are on their high horse, but you're proud that like you're smoking stuff that's clean and not use any chemicals. So like you want to grow like that as well. So it just kind of went hand in hand like that. And just kind of like, I'm going to grow this plant in living soil. I just did a little like living soil cover crop, super simple in like five gallon pots. And I washed that one plant, Larry OG air dried the melt. I think that was 2016 and just dried all the other plants for flower. But ever since then, I was just 
in love. So, I mean, I was in love before, but like, it's a whole new love when you have your first harvest, I feel like. So. Yeah. I believe it was Amanda who I spoke to from the garden in Greece. She said like, you need to grow and yeah. make cash. I remember really, that episode. Yeah. yeah to, to really, really appreciate really, it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You definitely have a whole new appreciation when you were like there for the entire process. Cause like you see the jars sitting on the table and it's easy to take it for granted, but like really so many things and people and places that like have gone into that jar. So like, you know, it could be seeds that popped here and bred here and then popped here and then grown here. And then, you know, flowered this place. It's just like, they make such a journey. So it's, cool to be able to appreciate that and to connect with people that actually do because there's a lot of people that t- take it for granted but there's also a lot of people who are like so awesome and so appreciative and like so um just respectful of the whole process which is great because it's not an easy process so yeah yeah that's cool to hear so let's talk about living soil because you mentioned that that was the first kind of style you started using yeah and I know that we spoke about this earlier. Things have kind of changed for you. You're doing more of a hybrid mm-hmm. type style. So why don't we start by giving your take on what you feel living soil is since you've said that it's used loosely, especially in cannabis. Yeah, it's definitely a loose term, you know, and just because it's grown in soil doesn't mean it's living soil. To me, like living soil is... I think it has to be in beds or big pots, usually like multiple plants in the same pot or like, you know, a bed with all the plants sharing the same root zone and the same like rhizosphere. There needs to be like a mulch layer. There needs to be, well, the mulch layer is not, in my opinion, crucial to have it be like considered living soil or not, but there just needs to be like decomposition or, or organic matter, you know, like running through the soil and coming in and being processed throughout it. I also feel like you can be feeding things that aren't necessarily 100% organic matter. Like, I feel like you could also be feeding like organic liquids, things like monosicilic acid, which like I'm a huge fan of. Shout out to Power SI. They're an awesome company that, in my opinion, like my hash has only gotten better since I've used them in everything from clones to, to hash. Like, so... I feel like you can use small things like that and have it still be considered living soil as long as you're like, you know, facilitating that natural cycle. And there's different levels of that. Like there's some people who are literally only feeding water and doing heavy compost and heavy top dressing, or there's like uh, my approach now. I mean, I, I started out doing stuff like that where just heavy into compost and top dressing and re-amending heavily every time. And now I'm kind of more into like, uh, well, I also changed to the vegan approach of like, of the living soil. So there's no animal products, which kind of changes things a little bit. You just have to rely on different materials and a little, I feel like you need to be maybe feeding the plants a little bit more than you would if they were fully amended with like normal animal product or whatever. Just a little harder to find some of that plant-based stuff. So that's why I kind of go with the hybrid approach of like using the power SI and some other plant-based top dressing and some other feedings to do it. So like so many different genres, but to me, all of what I've just explained is, is like a living soil to me. It's just like, 
different styles of it. So, so is this non-use of animal products? Is that known as veganics? Yeah. Yep. So, and is there a purpose outside of not wanting to use animal products? So, honestly, I just well, I'm vegan. I've been vegan for about two years now, and when I changed my diet and everything, it just made me like look at the world a little differently and. Once I cut that all out of like my diet, I just kind of like didn't really, I didn't really want that in the plants diet either. Not that it's like the same thing, but some cheaper amendments that are made from or uh, animal product are not the best and they're not made like super sustainably or well, or they're not like a quality ingredient. So I just feel like a lot of the plant-based alternatives, like a nitrogen that's coming from like, a plant-based amendment versus an animal-based amendment is just a little cleaner for the soil. And just like, I'm just like, well, if I'm eating like that, I might as my plants might as well eat like that also. So, and I just kind of rocking with it and um, yeah, I've been liking it. It's, it's, I feel like it's a little more simple just cause there's less to use. I I've just been all about like simplifying things and that's a uh, important part of like the single source thing is to not overcomplicate every process. So yeah. You make them more efficient. Yeah, exactly. So in regards to the soil, do you feel that by taking the animal products out, it's making the soil less, for example, quote unquote hot or full of um, mm. nutrients or, or whatnot? So like you're able to add nutrients yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you could still amend it with um, traditional amendments and have it be very hot or you could lightly amend it with traditional amendments and have it be not very hot. Same with the veganic ones, but I always prefer to do like a lighter amendment just in case I do want to like maybe feed some liquids down the line. I feel like they need it. Like not every strain feeds the same way. Some are awesome with really nothing and some could really benefit from some extra feeds. So, um, I think like that gives me some wiggle room. I feel like if it's all hot and amended, I'm going to be scared to feed anything because I could burn it or it could burn it just by having a bunch of amendments in there. So that's kind of, yeah, there's, there's so many like different little niches, but that also made me think of because you're in the same soil, living soil round after round, you don't want to be like adding too much to it. You know, it's good to get it tested and it's good to not just be randomly throwing things on your soil and guessing. So having like a simple lighter kind of amending in between rounds, I think is like a nice safe way for like the longevity of the soil. So yeah, I think that's like my tech right now. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's cool to hear this kind of hybrid way that yeah. you're working. And I think I read one of your posts, you said like I'm a feeder and I like to see results quickly in my plants. And that's another reason that this yeah. is working for you. Totally. Totally. Like the, the veg and mom game is a pretty big, it's like a huge part of the picture in, in anyone's brand. And especially with the single source, I was doing that all in soil with organics. And then I switched that up to cocoa with a mix of organics and synthetics. And that's what I'm currently doing. So that's like the whole veg is just all in cocoa. And to me, it's just been way more efficient because the plants are just having the nutrients like readily available to them right away. I can produce clones like in a very timely fashion and kind of build moms a little bit quicker. 
everything veges in soil a little bit slower. And then they're still, they're still vegging completely for about three to four weeks in living soil beds and completely flowering in living soil beds. That's kind of another thing that I've found that's a little bit of an interesting change. And do you feel like that transition is smooth for the plants? I restarted everything. So like, I didn't want to put, because usually like a mob's in five gallons of soil, I can't really put that into cocoa. So I just restarted everything up in, in the, the different medium. So I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but interestingly enough, you were saying earlier or kind of alluding to the fact that this is another point I was going to make, not necessarily about the medium, but you brought up plant health. Yeah. What's another thing that you feel is important for growing A plus quality resin? I think it's um, maybe being a little a little bit obsessive compulsive with it, like just being very into it, checking on your plants multiple times a day, doing, being willing to take the extra step and like, you know, get everything done in the garden and not lag on certain things. And I'll do it. I'll do it tomorrow. Like, no, do it now because it's going to be best for the plants to do it today. So just getting in those good habits, I think is like a very important part of growing good resin because like I was listening to, um, a podcast, uh, another one, uh, First Smoke of the Day, Bobby Trill's podcast, shout out Bobby Trill. And he was saying that resin, like I, I agree with this completely, good resin can be grown like in all mediums. It just takes the time, the care. I can't exa- remember it word for word, but it's like, as long as you're putting the time, the care and the passion to it, I think resin can be good hash. Six star full melt can be grown in soil and cocoa in rock wool, in any medium, it just is like all about that grower, you know, controlling. And that's just like some extent. I think this is just kind of me. And I think a lot of other growers, when they first get into living soil, they're kind of like on their high horse and the organics like oh, organics is better than everything. Like fuck all you salt guys and excuse my language. And I was like that too for a long time, but like I look up to a lot of all, all growers, you know, synthetic and organic. So, and you can really learn a lot from each side and apply each like knowledge from both to each other. There's no reason to look down. It's just, you can just take, use it to your advantage and kind of take the knowledge from each, develop your own style. So I don't think you've ever grown for flower or you said you dried some. Yeah what's the difference between being a trichome farmer and growing for flower? Yeah, there's definitely a difference. I've never devoted a crop to flower just because like I started out for the hash and it's always been about that. So, um, but I've really have some interest now in trying to do some like small flower runs. It's, it's similar being a trichome farmer to a flower farmer, but it's also a bit of a different mindset. I feel like the flower farmer is more concerned about dry weight, you know, the, how much pounds you can get per light or, you know, per square foot. And uh, yes, that's very important for trichome farming too, but it's more important of like the resin coverage. Like you can get three pounds of light, but not have good trichome coverage and then have two pounds of light, but have amazing trichome coverage and produce the same amount of hash because, you know, the yields are going to be significantly different because all the resin is going to fall off the two pound per light. So it's kind of like different in the feeds and different. And like, you don't, we want, you don't want to push your plants as hard. And I 
like I said, I have never grown for flour, but I follow a lot of very good flour farmers and I like to like keep up with their game and everything. And it just seems like they really push their plants and with trichome farming, it's almost like less is more. I feel like, like lower PPM, lower EC, sometimes even lower light intensity because it could sometimes like, for example, a shaded greenhouse can produce some killer resin, like composed to like one that's get beating on the sun all day. Same with like a room that's getting like crazy PPFD versus like nice and chill. So there's definitely a lot of different factors, but I think there's more similarities than differences for sure. And you started your growing career in a greenhouse? Just outside, just full term. Full term, okay. Yep, under a little tree. And then while I was like, you know, working, vegging indoors, doing clones and all that. And then the next step was the greenhouse. And then the little tent after that. And then um, now I'm doing both. Just like have a couple greenhouses and an indoor spot that, uh, yeah, so... So talk to us a little bit about how that first greenhouse developed. Um, yeah, the first greenhouse developed. I, uh, let's see. Okay, shout out to Ogre Farms. They were one of the first people that washed anything that I grew. I grew some Grease Monkey, 15 plants, just fully outdoor. And um, they've been buddies of mine for a while, but they were nice enough to wash wash that for me. So I was super stoked on the results and I was like, oh man, I need to, I need to wash myself now. Like I I just really need to like, well, I already did it small scale, but I was like, I need to get a freeze dryer. I need to like actually do it. Cause like I was growing enough to actually do a amount that's worth drying in a freeze dryer and everything. So that was kind of like my first kind of like introduction to like having my own hash and then I was like, well, I can't grow outdoor all year round. You know, it's, that was the winter time. That was like around February or I don't know. It was like December. It was like, I planted those plants pretty late in the year. I didn't have any indoor space and I've always loved growing under the sun. So I just did a really small greenhouse and did one crop in there. And um, that was the crop that I did my first ever like wash with the freeze dryer in. That was successful. So I like made the greenhouse a little bigger and then like my journey kind of started. Yeah, so I'm curious because we talked about this. We did the garden tour virtual thing last year yep. and or this year, yep. <laughs> yep. earlier this year. Last season, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was like the second hoop house or the second greenhouse. Yeah. And so I'm curious, having done the first one and got that experience and expanded it, was there a different approach to starting the second one? Definitely different approach than, than building the first one. I took everything like I learned. At greenhouse growing is definitely for people that don't know this. Unless you have a million dollar structure that's fully climate controlled, you're working with the weather. So, you know, every area is going to be different. I'm down here in Ventura County, which is, you know, pretty coastal and it doesn't get too cold. So we can grow year round. So it kind of just the technique varies, you know, every spot. So this, this second greenhouse was in a little bit of a different spot. We just kind of accounted for that with like building a sturdier structure because it was in a little bit more of a rougher wind zone. It's in like a different agricultural zone slightly. So I just wanted to make sure it was really strong and not like too crazy tall because a greenhouse is kind of like a big sail boat, like flag, you know, it's just like sitting out in the middle of the, so uh, if those things aren't like built proper, they will, 
that will get messed up in the wind. So yeah, other than that, it was pretty much the same though. Like a little bit of a different soil recipe, just kind of took everything and tweaked it to not have to tweak it again. And yeah. remind me, what's the size on that second greenhouse? Um, it's just a smaller one. It's just 12 by 24 feet. So those are the sizes of all of mine. Just a few of those. Yeah. And you and I spoke about this a little earlier, but you said, I believe in the first one, you have about 11 cycles in. Uh, yeah, it's like 11 cycles in since that, since I was mentioning that first ever run in it with the freeze dryer. The right. first one. Yeah. Have you felt? Chemdog and GMO. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like things have changed or gotten better per se? Um, yeah, things have definitely gotten gotten better. Every run is always learning. The soil has definitely gotten better. It's also gone through like a little bit of a transformation just because the greenhouse has gone from being like a smaller size over to a bigger size. So all the beds had to be moved. They weren't in place the whole time. So like all the soil had to be wheelbarrowed so the new greenhouse could be like made basically and put back in place so that might have like disrupted the biology a little bit but like not enough to where it's any negative effects it's all going good so and being here in socal how many runs are you able to get a year in those greenhouses I mean, of course, it depends on your like veg game because if, if you're vegging indoors and you have plants like ready to flip you could get like four harvests four and four plus but i usually get like about three plus because i'm not really uh planting them and flipping right away i like to like build up a nice canopy it usually takes a little bit especially when you're vegging in the winter time it definitely takes a little bit longer to build up the plants than it does in the summertime just because it's colder and the days are a lot shorter so you know sometimes you have to deprive them of light sometimes you have to like add some supplemental light yeah, that's what's cool. It's like every harvest is so different. The summer harvest, the buds will be, you know, like the the light, the main light up harvest of the year will be just like super fat flowers. And I'll probably pull the most weight out of there all year. And it creates great resin, but there's just something special about like the winter resin runs. The flowers aren't nearly as dense, but like the resin is so like, I feel like it's more consistently melty, like full melt quality some strains aren't always full melt quality. Like naturally, like the, the trichomes just not, it's too stable for it to be a true six star or, you know, a million other factors. But, and, but the winter runs, sometimes those strains that are rarely melt will be a really good melt. And it's, it's cool to see that just a little bit harder to like manage the winter runs because there's more humidity and it's colder out so it's more challenging than a summer run but that's just all part of farming so yeah it's interesting like you brought up earlier about sometimes when the they're in the shade yeah they can do better than if they're getting beat down by the sun i mean though like you said the the elements yeah and it sounds like the winter is kind of trickier Mm -hmm. in growing and maybe even produces less but the resin that you get off that plant yeah is like this kind of elite, but it's interesting that you bring this up because I just was talking about this in my last interview with uh, Brian or Goat Organics, and we were talking about Six Star and talking about genetic potential. So you're saying that in your opinion, you feel some genetics just don't have it in them, no matter the grower skill, the environment, to be a high oil to wax ratio? Yeah, correct. I think... 
you could do everything perfectly, you know, environment and just everything, hash it perfectly, do a super light, short first wash and just, it's not going to be a true six star, even though like all odds are it should be, but it's just like, I feel the genetics are just, it's hard to put an exact reason on it, but the, the wax membrane around that head is just like too thick. And I, I think so it's like, it's just, it's could be super tasty and super fire looking, but it's just not going to melt like, you know, a true six star, like will I feel like that's not the case a lot of time, but for example, straw Nana, a lot of hash makers have worked with that strain and it's just one that like, I've never seen like a super fire six star melt from that perfectly water grease. You know, it doesn't grease like that clear look in the jar. It's just a little more stable and cake easier. So I think those textures, I think are the strains that tend to like, maybe not be the true six. And then there's some strains that really are just like, oh, every bag melty, like the the rosin yields are like 90 plus percent. The first wash 90 use water. If you wanted to, you could probably mix, you could probably do like second, third wash 90 and mix it all and have it still be super water melting hash. It's, it's crazy to see those like variations. What's the genetics that you see most consistently be melty? That I've worked with, I would say the number one is the fuel pops. That one was probably, that was like the first pheno that I ever really found under like brand where I was like running some GMO and some lava cake and some other stuff. And then that was one of the first pack of seeds that I popped and got blessed with a really awesome pheno that just really is a good full melt strain. And then there's one like the papaya drip, which is not the best full melt strain. I think it's still, I've still dropped full melt of it and I still plan to drop full melt of it because it produces a really terpy, tasty melt, but it doesn't melt like a true six. It's more of like a five and a half, five star because it's just leaves a little more residue due to the trichome structure and everything like that. Other than that though, um, a lot of the, the GMO crosses tend to have that in them, the melty potential. Some of the papaya crosses, I haven't had the best luck with in that sense. But again, if, if you're not going for melt, none of this is going to like matter. But there's so much more like that goes into a good melt strain than a good rosin strain, I feel like. It's harder to find that. This may be a difficult question to answer, but do you feel like the genetics that do have that really high oil to wax or six-star potential, uh-huh. let's call it, are superior to other genetics? I think so. Yes. Any strain like that, I've like never got tired of smoking. But that's just my opinion. I haven't tried, I haven't had a ton of other genetics. I've tried a good amount of other brands, but I kind of stay in my little bubble of my stuff. But yeah, when there's something that's like melts like that every time, like the rosin from that will always be very special and the hash from that will always be like a pleasure. Cool. Well, one of the things that you also have changed up in your garden is going from hand watering to irrigation. Yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about that because you seem pretty happy with the results. Yeah, I'm super happy with it. 
I, like most people are, I was a little timid to like make the switch just because I was like, oh, I'm going to overwater my plants and it's going to be hard for me to, you know, monitor it. But just following some guy, a lot of guys on Instagram and seeing and just kind of studying how they do it. Like that's a good example of applying knowledge from the salt guys, the, the synthetic like indoor guys to the like organic soil world is like they're they're like irrigation like wizards and they crush that irrigation tech. So I just kind of applied some of that to the soil beds. The idea is to kind of have smaller frequent waterings versus like one big watering. Like typically with the hand watering, you'll kind of just go and give them a nice water and then like wait a day or two in the beds and then hit them again. With this, they're just they're just getting water every day, multiple times a day, or at least and it's not like it's the same as hitting rock wool or cocoa like tw- 12 times of like small shots a day. It's not like that, but it's the same idea of just keeping the, the beds moist and consistent and not letting anything like dry out too much, especially with washing and managing the moms and the clones and the packaging and drops and it's being there to water every single day for three different gardens. It's like having all that on irrigation is awesome especially seeing that it produces, in my opinion, in my experience, better results just because the plants like things happening at the same time every day. I feel like they like expecting things almost. And when, when they can rely on that and it's consistent, it's just, they seem to grow a lot faster and they seem to get a little better yields like weight wise. So I've definitely been a fan of that and plan on. I still have tons to learn, but it's definitely exciting, like kind of getting a grasp on it. It took me like six months, but now that I have a grasp on it, it's like great to see the results. Yeah, that's cool. Like you said, as you maybe expand or have a few more gardens, it's kind of difficult to be able to hand water. Yeah, it allows expansion more easily because it's just another set another part of it that's just dialed in and kind of plug and play. Right. Yeah. Another thing is you've now taken on some indoor stuff, some indoor gardens. Uh-huh. Are you using the drip system in there as well? Um, yep. Same exact drip system and idea. Well, it's a little bit different in terms of like the actual emitters because the beds are just set up a little differently in, in the greenhouses. They're just long flat beds And in the indoor, they're like living soil totes. So I have to have like emitters in each tote versus like a drip line that can just drip along the whole big bed. But other than that, it's the same idea, just getting the water on schedule and like hitting them right when they come on and like maybe one or two other times. I I definitely hand water them until they're big enough and the root zone's big enough to like just work off the irrigation. It's not like you can just plug them in right away. And that's like for the soil beds. You can, that doesn't go for like other, you know, in, in like hydroponic systems, you can do it, plug in irrigation right away. But with the soil, I like to like give them a nice hand water for like about a week or so before the irrigation is like the only thing they rely on. Right. So, and you can only run certain things through the irrigation, especially when you're running organics. It's a line with small emitter holes. So like it can get clogged very easily. So I tend to only run water just like the water and the power SI through the emitters. And then if I want to feed like a compost tea or any organics, 
I'll hand feed that with the wand just so it doesn't have to go through like clog my drip system. Yeah. You yeah. Had mentioned that to me that that builds yeah. up quite easily. In yeah. There. Definitely learned by experience. On that. <laughs> <laughs> and you're running LEDs in those rooms. Yep. I'm running LEDs in those rooms. They're the uh, grower's choice brand LEDs, the seven twenties. I've uh, pretty much only rocked their lights just because for good things they've performed well and I've seen a lot of guys rocking them. So yeah, they're good lights. And what's been the learning curve going from full term to greenhouse to indoor? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I feel like most people, especially down here, like I'm, we're like right, right out of LA and they're just way more indoor down here than sun grown, whether it be greenhouse or full term. And most people learn indoor and then go to like greenhouse or sunground. Like I learned sunground and went to indoor. So like it was definitely a big kind of a big challenge and a big change because honestly the sun and the cannabis are like a match made in heaven. Like it's a lot, I feel like it's not a lot easier to grow healthy plants under the sun, but like they definitely love being under the sun a lot. So Indoors, when you're, especially under LEDs, those, you know, I didn't really rock HPSs. I've only been doing indoor literally like for the past 18 months. That's like right when the LED wave started. So that's all I've been rocking. And they're very intense lights. And like, of course you will like, when you're new to it, the first thing you want to do is just like, oh, let's put them to hundred percent, of course. But then like you learn fast, that's really intense for them. And the, the plants seem a little bit more like sensitive sensitive indoors it just like different kind of just they grow like a different flower it seems like the flowers and indoor are usually a little bit smaller but super dense and really triked out and the greenhouse is like a lot bigger buds but not as dense a little more airy and still like very triked out so it's just and it's cool because like I run all the same genetics indoors and outdoors and it's like some stuff loves being outdoors more. Some stuff likes being indoors more. The ha- I can see the differences in the hash, which is kind of cool to see. What are some of the differences you've seen? Well, for the full melt, indoor melt is always going to be like a little bit cleaner, a little bit less particulate, noticeable, like under the scope or to the eye. And the rosin from the indoor can be tend to be a little bit lighter colored, but also maybe not as wet. And terpy, like the the greenhouse material will usually be like, you know, like a cold cure rosin will be like more wet and more terpy. And in my opinion, I don't think one, I don't prefer one or the other, you know, most of the time I'm going to reach for the sun grown just because I feel like it has a little bit more of a full potency effect. Maybe the rosin will be slightly darker than the same strain grown indoors under the LEDs and the full melt. Sometimes it's meltier. I've had more consistent melt be more of like a six star quality being sun grown than the indoor. I've had the indoor hit like 5.75 star, but I, I'm like, mm, this is not like full, full, full water, but it's like very melty and spire. And then I've had the runs in the greenhouse be like, this is water. Like, oh my God. So But like I said, I think it's just run to run, you know, the perfect greenhouse run, the perfect indoor run. Most people are not going to know the difference. So, yeah, it's very, very hard to distinguish. 
those, especially when they're grown, because they're all grown the same way with the same feeds and the same like veganic amendments and the power aside, the same drip tech and genetics. So I think that's the main thing. Grow tech and genetics over light source. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I think this is a good opportunity for a second smoke break. Let's do it. All right. I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who makes up our community on Patreon, which allows us to continue producing episodes, including episode 38 with Cameron of Sunfire Farms. And I'd like to give a shout out to some of our top contributors, including Kevin of Lifted Indina, Run the Nugs Resin Reserve, the Chile Relleno Burrito in Trinidad, Mario in Illinois, Garland in DC, the good homies from Mission Hill Melts, Hiker Trash Cannabis in Maine, my dude, the real cannabis Chris, Nick the Intern, the homie Big C, the Hash Hive in Cali, the crew at Heritage Hash Co. Mendocino, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, Macro Melts in SoCal, Dave of Rosin Evolution, Cat Crop aka Melt Walkie, Jonah and Ryan in Illinois, and the boys on the Big Island, Pressing for Show and Mother Rock Botanicals. I thank each and every one of you for your support. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So we've talked a decent amount about melt. You mentioned earlier that you put it out as well as rosin. Why is it important to you to put out melt? Um, it's important to me to put out melt because I think that's like, to me, it's the pinnacle of the plant. The trichomes in a jar is just, the like, like I said earlier, like the reason I got into all this. And uh, I love rosin too. Like there's a lot of people that are like, you know, melt over rosin. And I agree, like I smoke a lot more melt than rosin, but rosin is awesome. And it's just like, it's just all what people prefer. But like, for me, it's always important to drop melt, at least here and there. Like not every drop has to have melt, but as much as I can, going to go for the melt because the people who are most passionate, who I work with and who enjoy my product they're always super passionate and stoked on the melt. And it's just, it's such a small amount compared to how much rosin there is. It's like a very special thing. So um, it's always kind of like a sacred time smoking that in a little bit of a way. Yeah. We've yeah. been enjoying a good amount of your resin here, hanging out. We yeah. tried some melt of the double burger. That was nice. And then also the GMO cake cross. Yeah, GMO cake pops. Cake pops. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, Evermore as well. That's an Evermore one. Yeah. I'm curious. This might be kind of a hard question to quantify, but what's the ratio of releasing melt to rosin on a variety? Like, how much melt do I drop in comparison to rosin? Kind yes. of thing. Um, that's a good question. Probably like less than twenty five percent, or around twenty five percent is melt, and the rest is rosin, compared to like you know the whole drop of each strain out of a hundred grams. So depending on the strain, cause some strains put out a ton of melt and some strains put out very little melt. Sometimes like I'll do a wash and say, I get a hundred grams back of hash from that wash. 50 of those grams could be full melt 90 first wash. And the rest is rosin grade, which is like pretty epic, but that's pretty rare. It's usually like, you know, 20, to 30% is, is melt and the rest is rosin grade. And does it change from 
genetics to genetics, what melt ranges you'll release, for example? Um, like what micron size melt ranges? Correct. Um, not really. I have, I, when I first started, I was pulling like a 90U bag and a 120U bag and releasing the same strain in 90U and 120U. But now I've just been kind of just releasing a 90U and taking out that 120U bag. So it's 90 to 159. And that range is just like kind of the most consistent range that I like to pull and that most people pull 90 to 149 or 159. That's kind of the most consistent quality spot. So I just kind of stay to that. And some strains, maybe I'll go to the 70, but like I haven't done that. I haven't released a 70U mount ever. But if I like saw it washing like that, if I was doing like a rosin only run or something, then I would go for that. Consider a 70U? Yeah, yeah. Considering 70, 90, 120. Because like when I was telling you back in like 2015, 16, when I was going to like Studio City and Hollywood to like the weed and like WTHC and some of those other uh, dispensaries like Oswego, they all were dropping like 70 UML, like 70 UML was like just as good as 90, basically. It was like, and I still agree with that. There could be some incredible 70 U first wash melt, but um, not everyone was smoking melt back in the day like that and knows that. So, yeah. And what brands were you smoking back at that time? I was smoking Matt Rise's stuff and Mad River Melts, Vegan Buddha. If anyone remembers Vegan Buddha, that was a, that was a good one. A couple others like uh, Robix Melt and like Elevated Extracts. Some of these guys are not around anymore. Uh, Trichome Heavy Extracts, to name a few. So Cool. And the majority of that, I'm guessing, was air-dried and then started becoming a freeze right? Yeah, all of that was air-dried. That was like right when Rosin was coming out because Rosin came out in like early 2015. And that's when I first kind of started getting on that like little scene of going to drops at the dispensaries and stuff. All that was air dried. And then like, I think started being freeze dried like a little bit after that, but it was pretty rare to see freeze dried stuff back then. Right. And yeah. it was funny. Cause like you told me earlier, you started smoking herb and that only lasted like a few months and then you tried hash. Yeah. And you were just like, yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. I smoked weed for a while. I, I fell in love with it right away. It was like an instant love. I just got really into it. And then I took a dab on Halloween. And yeah, I just was like, oh, I like this. And even though it was like a gross, red hot dab, I was like, if I figure this out, like I was kind of intimidated by it. And then I was like, oh, this is chill. Like I can do this. And I started watching YouTube and I was like, I want to smoke hash. Like kind of just forgot about flour. And honestly, it's been like that ever since. <laughs> But I still love and respect flour and I'll smoke it every once in a while. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. I, you know, when I first started doing the podcast, I mostly was smoking flour and some hash. And now it's almost exclusively, you know, hash or rosin. Yeah. And it's not because of any reason. It's just like, it's just happened. Yeah. And now, funny enough, when I smoke herb, unless it's really high grade, shout out Alpen Glow Farms. I had a joint up there, Wakanda. Oh, was, nice really really nice but outside of that it's really hard to find yeah like really nice flavorful that smokes really well right. or, clean grown know. that you can like trust and that like, yeah especially as well yeah totally so 
I totally get that. You know, back to the melt though, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the six star and like, I think you said something funny. Um, one of them was like maybe 5.75. <laughs> How are you determining that? Just off kind of my experiences and and how it's melting in the nail. And I feel like that that scale of one through six has like slowly increased. Like a six star, like a five star today in 2021 would be like a fire six star back in 2015 or 16 or 17, I think. In relation to? Yeah. In relation to the melt. But it's not just the melt. It's also like the flavor and the the high and you know you could have something that melts amazing but if it tastes not like not much and it's not much of an producing much of an effect it's like is it really a six star because it's not doesn't sound like it's enjoyable like a six star should be if it's not like hitting all those categories that's just kind of what i've considered i think it's not all about the melt it's definitely flavor considered like how i was saying with that papaya drip it's super it it's some of the terpiest melt i've ever dabbed but it lacks a little bit in the melt factor it still melts nicely but it's not something i'd call like a a six star melt it's like yeah the five seven five or five and a half depending on the batch and do you prefer something that's this 5.75 in melt still or in a rosin i love it in melt um and most of the people who i talk to who like share the same like deep passions and and experiences like with a lot of good quality resin are totally happy dabbing something that's super terpy. That's just maybe going to leave a little more char on the nail, but for the average consumer, that's not in that loop. They're going to be like, why is it leaving so much char? Like it tasted good, but like, Hmm. So they don't really understand. So in that case, I'll maybe release a small amount of melt for the, you know, that select group of people and then release the majority as like a really good rosin. Cause you know, when that first wash 90 U goes into rosin grade, it's like, of course, very nice. So, right. Yeah. That's one of my next questions is how do you determine what goes into your rosin grade? Usually um, just by anything over 70, I will keep as rosin grade and anything below 160, sometimes 190. So sometimes strains have really big heads and those big heads tend to be really flavorful. So it's like, yeah, let's include it into the rosin. But usually it's just kind of set in stone, like, you know, first wash 70 and then second wash 70 to 159 through like the fourth or whatever, how much you, some strains dump I usually do one through fourth, four washes, sometimes five. It's if it's something that I'm like washing lighter or if it's really, it's a real dumper or something. That's kind of like how my process works for what to press and whatnot. So. And how long are your washes? It varies depending on like how much I'm washing and the amount I'm washing, but it's usually about like sub 10 minute washes. Sometimes when they're the second and third, they're going to be around 10 minutes. The first wash is usually shorter because it's like more lighter to not beat it up. Right. To get that melt. So. Cool. Speaking of big heads, I saw that you released some 160 to 189 melt. Yeah. That was off your double burger. Which yeah. I thought a little while ago. That was a special about. batch. That was a winter batch that just like, that was the first run in that new greenhouse and just huge heads like I've never seen before. I've never had 160 yields like that. And 
I was like partying that night after that watch. <laughs> I'm just, I just have, I just like, it's rare to see that. So it's, it was cool. And to have it be a full melt, dabble quality 160U is, is a rare thing to see. So not only I 160, mean, but all the way through the 189. So yeah. Yeah. The 190. Totally. It was like, yeah, some special, special resin. Yeah. So I'm curious, like when you wash something like that, and you might have not have been expecting it. Uh-huh. So it might be different. But do you make any adjustments in your wash or your bags? Not really. I mean, if I see that one huge 160U pole, then I might just take out the 160U bag for the rosin grade because that's going to get mixed in anyways. Because I definitely will press that 160 because that batch was just really good 160. So yeah, I'd probably just take out that 160 just to not have to collect as much. And it would be collected with the 70 and up anyways to fall into that bag. So other than that, that's probably all I would do. Yeah. I was partially curious because uh, Rosin Evolution released that 250U bag. Yeah. And I'm curious like what that would do for your wash with heads that are falling in that range. Mm -hmm. Would that clean that up anymore or not? I'm curious, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily would clean it up anymore, but it could allow like, for better yield because I've always, I've literally always thought like, Oh, I think there should be like a little bit bigger bag than a 220 for that, like actual work bag where you're, where the actual material is in because you know, it's just a lot of material and ice and it sits at the bottom. And you, sometimes you feel like not everything's like going to be making it through the 220 holes. So like having that peace of mind of the 250 is like, ooh, I got to try this. I want to try this out. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah. I was talking to Baron of Nasha Extracts the other night about that. And we were just talking about that specifically about material possibly getting caught up in these higher bags. Yeah. You know, so it'd mm-hmm. be interesting to start separating that. A yeah, yeah. More. Do some numbers and see if it affects the yields at all or anything. For sure. Yeah. So... Talk to me about how you got into washing, because that's something we really haven't talked much about. Yeah. So when I was talking about that first plant that I ever grew, I wanted to wash it. So my buddy just had, I think it was literally a one gallon set. Do they even, one or two gallon set of bubble bags. Maybe it was a five, but some really small bags. And uh, yeah, it was like a probably like a 300 gram fresh frozen plant. It was, t- it was very small and I washed it. I don't, we didn't really do any numbers. It was just so new. Like to me, I was just kind of stoked on like, Oh, there's like a big patty of hash here. Like I just want to actually dry it. And yeah, that was just kind of a special experience. And then I learned all that kind of like how to do it through like bubble man on YouTube. So I just kind of studied his videos and then slowly like some other people's videos started coming up, like go pure pressure. I believe had a good amount of like educational videos. This was in like 2018, I believe. Uh, Yeah. Like early 2018 that I bought the first freeze dryer and I uh, was like, all right, I'm ready to actually like send it. And I felt confident enough with like the process to uh, like devote my crop to it and freeze it all. And, I mean, not like I was going to do anything else with it, but it was just like, it's, it's a definitely a leap. I didn't have a cold room and I was GMO and chem dog. And I was blessed to have the GMO to have like one of my first ever washes with it. Cause it's just a super easy strain to work with. Like me and my buddy talk about this and it's like some strains you literally feels like you don't even need a cold room to wash it in because they're just so stable and they're so 
easy to work with. They don't really stick on the bags and it's just a pleasure to, you know, collect the resin. And some strains, if it, it could be 30 degrees in your cold room and they're like sticking to the bags and it's your spoons all greased up and like, that's how the chem dog was. So I uh, luckily I washed the GMO first and like had a confidence boost and it got a nice like 6% yield. And that's kind of how I started. Cool. And then I built the cold room. I was like, all right, we got to do this proper six by eight little cold room, our tech insulation and yeah, crushed it for the first few months in that little small garage setup. <laughs> and as a selector, especially since you're doing it single source and growing it from seed mostly now, what are you looking for in a hasher outside of percentage? You know, you talked about sticking to the bags. You know, I've heard from people that sometimes they can do well uh-huh. percentage wise or like amount wise. Right. But the quality of the resin in the bags is just so difficult to work with. Yeah, yeah. From my experience, um, everything that's been like a good yielder, like anything above 5%, has always seemed to collect really easily and scrape right off the bags. My cold room temperatures aren't crazy cold. Like I'm usually like, you know, in the mid 50s, low 50s. I've noticed like the stuff that yields lower is the stuff that kind of is like the this really sticky, greasy, like, resin and um a lot of times that stuff will be really quality but also sometimes when it's really really hard to work with it's like it's almost like it was never meant to be in a solventless form and you press it and it's like eh but those are just kind of you have to wean through those to get the good ones yeah for part sure. of the process yeah and like you said i mean right now even you're in a good position being that so many genetics are available from seed that yeah. you can get good results from as to maybe where before people weren't really focusing on that. Right. Totally. It was kind of just like some known cuts to that were kind of floating around like, oh, that one's a hasher, that one's a hasher, like that one's a hasher. And then now it's like a whole different kind of game, which understandably so, because that's like where the markets has been going as the solventless movements, like definitely very prevalent. So like the breeding is going to follow that, especially since it's such like an important genetic, you know, genetics are so important in that songless process. It's like, it seems to be where a lot of the breeders are heading, not all of them, but a good amount, which is great for, great for us. So. Yeah. It's cool to see. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the other adjustments you've made to your washing process outside of having a controlled environment? I would probably say just trying to, uh, maximize efficiency. Like once, once I, uh, it doesn't, I feel like the hash making process is pretty simple. And once you find your rhythm and your style, you feel confident with that. So then it's just all about maximizing your process and your efficiency. Like I said, like maybe doing, instead of doing a 6,000 gram wash in one day and then doing another 6,000 gram wash the day after that, like do 12,000 grams in the same day and utilize the freeze dryer and the freezer in a smart way. So you can like save time and save cycles on your freeze dryer and just save freezer space. Cause like, you know, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming having like freezers full and so much washing to do. And like a small, like it's basically all me unless I 
can get help from one person. So it's definitely a small, very small team. Every, every little step definitely matters in, at the end of the day. And, and, and like this, especially in like the time frame of things, because you don't want to like take a month to wash a crop. You know what I mean? <laughs> you want to get it turned around like quickly, which right. is an advantage of the solventless process, I would say. In, in this scenario where you were washing the 12,000 grams, would you have combined those and done it as a single wash? Um, I'd probably do it as two. I did recently like get bigger sets. Of, I've always like spun in a 32 gallon can and collected in 20s. And I recently like got a 44 gallon set and can to collect in 32s. So I can do those bigger washes, like those like, you know, six to eight, 9,000 gram washes. But usually I'm, I never grow more than per run and never grow more than about 10,000 grams of one strain. I, I kind of like set it up like as I'm cloning to be like, all right, this is, these plants are going to be this wash and these plants are going to be this wash. And like, these plants are going to be a mix wash of the, like of the, these plants are going to get mixed washed together. So 10,000 being on the high end per strain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would say 10,000 fresh frozen grams, which is about five pounds of like dried material. And like I said, that's on the higher end. It's usually like, you know, one greenhouse divided with four strains or five strains to diversify the selection. Right. And this combining is also done kind of premeditated or ahead of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know which ones you want to blend. Yeah, totally. I mean, one crop I had, a I just grew two strains, a bunch of two strains and when you have a lot of two strains, it's like, why not mix them? And that was kind of like, you know, not planned, but then they, I, I mixed washed them and they like really went well together. Some strains do okay together. Some seem to like really do well together and yeah, they did well. So I was like, all right, this would be like another one to, this is like something I can mix wash and just plan, plan it like it through the clone phase. I was like, oh, it would be a little better with a higher ratio of this to that. So it's like, I'll take a little more cuts of that one to this one. And yeah, right. plug it up like that. So it, I can do it how I want it. Yeah. And in this mixes, you said this, and it's kind of a, a general sentiment that sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Yeah. What are some of the times that they do work? What are some of the things that you see that is working in that combination? Yeah. Well, one of the things that would work is like, taking a strain that really washes well and mixing that with like a, like a really flavorful strain. That's like a lower end washer that kind of is harder to work with, like has a greasy sticky resin sticks to the bags in the cold and mix that with like a super stable strain, like Stronana or GMO or something to like make it easier to work with. So it's not, so you don't have to collect it super fast and like, you know, just have, because it's not a fun day in the washroom when it's like that, but when it's when it's nice and easy, it's like you can take your time and just not rush things. So that's probably like the best. That's probably the main example of, or the main reason why I mix wash drains is to to help with that and to create a new profile, of course. But like that's kind of like a little bit of a low key helpful thing to do if you have a strain that's like a little harder even like 10% of thousand grams of a hard strain to work with and like 200 grams of like an easier strain just to make it a little bit easier. And you probably won't even taste that 200 grams of that profile that you mixed in. 
not that I have actually like never done that before, but I feel like, I feel like I've heard someone say that they've done that and I feel like that'd be a really good, good idea. Yeah. I was curious, for example, with the GMO, was it a lot of GMO yeah. and a little bit of this really hard to work resin? And does that kind of like almost carry it in between it? Yeah, and exactly. Help? And he just kind of like carries it along and like, hopefully you just, a lot of it's just kind of like, you know, guessing also, but you'd be surprised some strains, a little of them goes a really long way. Right. In, in providing that kind of yeah more stableness. Uh, it's probably yeah. not the right word, but less sticky yeah, yeah. kind of factor to yeah, it. Yeah. Providing that better consistency, especially if it's a strain that's not, you know, like a trop cookies or like a papaya. That's not one you're going to want to do because it's going to overtake the flavor. But like, something like maybe a GMO or a wedding cake, it's a little more like subtle mixed in with like a super terpy strain. That's a better idea. So, cause it's more low key. And on the other side of the spectrum, when they don't work, so like the positive in that end oh, yeah. is like, it helps. Right. What's a negative on the other spectrum? I would say just maybe like mixing two that you think would make like a super cool new flavor. And then it just kind of like, doles down both of the flavors and just kind of like makes a new flavor that's just kind of like eh. or like maybe one just completely overrides the other and there's like no point in uh in doing that yeah i agree some of them like you said it's almost like they mute yeah each other and the collective taste right isn't necessarily better than one of the others exactly individually. exactly but I haven't experienced that too much, luckily. Yeah. No, that's good. Cool. <laughs> and you're washing by hand? Um, like yep, hand, hand washing and trash cans, yep. Yeah, and so this has been something that kind of has been brought up lately and is floating out there. So I'm curious your thoughts is, you know, these brew cans are supposed to be food grade. Uh-huh. So uh, some of the rumblings have been that alcohol isn't necessarily like the best cleaning agent for it because it might not be resistant to it huh. but something like soap still might work so yeah. I'm curious like what your practices are in that sense I haven't heard that but I've just always been like an alcohol guy just I mean that's funny I said that because I I don't drink actual alcohol <laughs> but um yeah a, a I just cleanser like yeah cleaning with alcohol I've always liked doing that cleaning the metal tables cleaning the cans and it's not like it's not like you're like scraping gunk off of the cans, you know, it's, you're just, right. you're giving them a nice sanitizing, like cleaning, you're not like rubbing them down. So, um, especially it's a good practice to clean your room like right when you're done, like half of hash making, I feel like even more than half, half, more than half of hash making is cleaning. So, you know, when you spray them down with water, it's basically like a quick ISO rinse and, uh, another more water. And then it's like back to brand new. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that technique. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not trying to put any fear out there in regards to that. It's just something that's been a discussion. And yeah, uh, just curious your thoughts on it. Yeah, totally. And then when you're done washing, you said like now you're going from the 44 to the 32s. Uh Do you physically like pick up the cans and yeah. Put them into the next one. Yep. Physically pick them up. I mean, I can like, I'll bail water out of them. I'll bail the water out. So they're like a level to pick up for me, but I've 
kind of like came up washing by myself. So I've been in that zone of just doing it all by hand and not really relying on anyone else to like pick it up with me. So that's why I like bail it out. But now that I have a little bit of help, we'll just kind of manhandle it. You know, I have a buddy that like has a pulley system to pull the bags up and you know, I've just kind of kept it simple and just like picked it up. It's not that bad. So yeah. yeah. A part of the reason I was asking is you were saying you're 26, right? Uh, 25, 25, coming almost. up on 26. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, as you said earlier about making your process more efficient as if over time, maybe that will change. Like you said, maybe you do come up with a pulley system. For yeah. Yourself. Yeah, for sure. Or like the brute list, just straight drain, like a, you know, gravity fed type system. But do you feel the wear and tear even being you know pretty young? Um, yes. Like washing is hard work. And like, pro- I was, I always say this props to like the, the people who work like just not like, you know, nine to five jobs, steady spinning cans all day long, like for rec recreational companies. Cause it is hard work, especially in the cold, you know, it's not easy, like being winded in a cold weather. So, um, it's definitely a very labor intensive process. I'll still get out to ride my bike at the end of the day after or something, but if it's a double wash day, I'm done for the day for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were talking about you. I've seen your, your bike riding some cool spots and it's actually right. Yeah. Right up here. Yeah. Up in the hills. So yep. that's cool. The local trails. Well, look, man, I'm still having fun. If you are, you want to take another dab and then we'll get back to it. Yeah, sure. All right, cool. We want to welcome our newest sponsor, Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at RockyMountainHigh719.org, where Rocky has curated a killer lineup of genetics from some of the most reputable breeders, including Harry Palms, aka Bloom Seed Co., and in-house genetics. And because he grows all the gear himself, he believes in all the seeds that he's offering, including his own line, in which he's also been doing some killer collabs, like the crawl line that drops this Friday. It's a collab featuring Harry Palm's Krusty Weasel, Cross to Rocky's Hitman OG. And like most of these crosses, they'll go fast. So if you're looking to bring some heat into your garden to hunt through, then do it from a trusted source like Rocky, because as passionate as he is about genetics, he's equally passionate about taking care of his customers. So expect nothing but great customer service and genetics when dealing with Rocky and take advantage of his generous discount code that he's extended to all Hashishian listeners, which is 25% off your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org, including all the new drops and the Harry Palms gear by using our savings code, the letters THI. Again, THI saves you a quarter off your entire order at RockyMountainHigh719.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk a little bit more about rosin. So you told us a little earlier what goes into the rosin. Talk to us a little bit about how your rosin pressing process has evolved because you mentioned earlier pressing flower rosin at the cuttings place and yeah. now, you know, you're making a totally different product. So yeah, what's been I, the evolution? Uh, well, I was definitely like around for the first, when rosin first came out, like whole hair straightener phase. I literally probably went through 10 plus hair straighteners in my day. You were smashing nugs? Smashing nugs on the hair straightener, like going to like down to like TLC, getting rosin pressed there. And like 
that's probably that's like how I was smoking. I was like buying flour, pressing it at home. And then once I started washing, obviously flour rosin was like, I do not want to be down with this anymore. It's in the past. No hate to flour rosin, of course. It's just like once you're used to dabbing hash rosin, it's like a very flour rosin is like a very raw, different type of smoking, like a dab experience. So then I started pressing hash, which was very, I feel like pressing hash is just so much more fun than pressing flour and just got a set of low temp plates, which I actually have been using that same press up until this year. Just got another set of low temp plates, just like a bigger, bigger set. But um, so I've been using that setup and just probably pressing about like 30 to 40 grams at a time, which I consider is like a small to medium size press. Just kind of doing that. I've started doing a lot of fresh press really like the fresh press. And then now I really love cold cure too. And I've kind of been leaning to the cold cure just because like a lot of people enjoy it and it stays the same consistency easier for like the end consumer. That's kind of what I've been, what I've been going for these days. So how do you determine which of those consistencies you put out for each of your genetics? Kind of just how I'm feeling. Usually some strains are really easy to press package as fresh press uh, compared to some other strains. Like some of those greasier strains will be like a very, you know, sappy rosin. And um, the other more stable strains will be a lot easier to like, you know, like gram out and stuff. So those are kind of the ones I tend to leaning towards um, is the more, you know, like stable, less sappy strains. And then the more sappy ones will produce like a really nice wet cold cure. But at the end of the day, like it's a lot easier for like a smaller guy like me, who's also like has the grow and the veg and everything going on to like package cold cure than package fresh press. It's just the fresh press takes a lot longer and it's a little more tedious to package opposed to the cold cure. Do you see fresh press as like an unfinished state? I don't. I definitely do not think that. I guess, I mean, I feel like that's a little bit of a silly statement. I've heard it, I've heard it a lot, but I, I also like, I, I also think it's like a, a bit valid also because, you know, it's not in its final form, but I respect anyone who's putting out the fresh press immensely just because it takes a lot more work and time. In my opinion, it's not as fun to package. It's not like it's that much harder, but like, it's just a little bit different. And it's also like you need to be pressing a rosin. Nothing needs to butter off the press. It needs to be like perfect off the press. No buttering, like all clarity. So like, you know, I feel like fresh press is a little bit more like not like melt, but it's like it has more factors to go into it to to be able to qualify for making it like that or, or putting it out like a fresh press, you know? And do you think people... Can- probably varies, but do you think people are dabbing the fresh press in its fresh press form? Yeah. Or are they letting it kind of butter out? I hope they're dabbing in the fresh press form and, you know, keeping it cold or like whipping it up themselves. But that's definitely the thing that like cold cure has going for itself. It's it's, it's going to be in that the same form you dropped it as, you know, um, the same form it left the lab as, you know. So you can't always trust that the fresh press is going to, it could show up as dry, a dry coin or 
something because someone just let it sit out, you know, for a week and didn't let it, didn't keep it cold. So, but you don't, the right people that, you know, you work with, they know how to handle the resin. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) And what goes into your cold cure process? Well, like most people know, the cold cure is a pretty general term. It's more of like a room temp cure. I started doing it, uh, adding a little bit of heat, like very little heat, a clone mat, but with like layers of cardboard in between it, between that and the jar. So it's like basically not on heat, but it's like slightly, slightly, slightly warm. But I found the best results by like not rushing the process with heat because like the more heat you give it to an extent, the faster it's going to convert and change. If you throw it on a clone mat, like, you know, in a few hours or depending on the strain or overnight, it's going to be ready to whip up and gram out. But lately I found the best results by just keeping it in the dark in like, you know, 60 to 70 degrees, high 60s to like high 70s and just kind of letting it do its thing and not rushing it. And I've noticed like a more, like a heavier turp layer and a more like wet final product. And how long are you letting that sit? Some strains still change overnight like that. And some strains take like a week or, you know, five days. Yeah, it's definitely kind of dependent on like the temperatures in there for sure. And every strain is just so different. So, And what you're looking for in that particular case is that separation? Um, Yeah, is that separation. So once it's fully separated and I see a full separated layer at the top, And the rest of the rosin is like, you know, I can see that it's like, you know, THC and then terps and everything else. Then I'll whip it up right away. Or I'll wait until it's like a day or two. Because I like to whip the jar up, like the big jar of rosin up, like right before it gets packaged. Just kind of how I've always done it. So, Right. And so just keep me in here. So from the fresh press, what do you do with it before it gets into that jar? Before you start that process, the fresh press to the cold, the jar that it goes cold curing into. Right. Um, I'll just press out what I'm pressing out, and I'll just it'll all be on the parchment, and um, I don't direct press into a jar, and then I'll just collect it with with my hands, you know, with gloves on, of course, and um, I'll just ball it up, weight on the scale real quick, and then just toss it into the jar. And usually, it's like it could be a pretty big old chunk of rosin, so I'll like break it up into a few different jars. And then, yeah, from there, it's immediately started in that cold cure process. Cool. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your brand, Sunfire Farms. So like you started developing your skills, cultivating, and then little by little with the hash. At what point did you decide to kind of formalize it into having a brand? Yeah, I decided to formalize it into a brand in like mid to late 2019. I was thinking about a brand earlier earlier that year, just going back and forth between a couple of different names. But like uh, my mom's an entrepreneur and my dad's an entrepreneur and they both have their own businesses. And like, I've just always been like, you know, had that spirit. So um, that was kind of when I decided like, all right, it's on fire farms. Like, that sounds good. Like no one else has that. Let's roll with it. And then I had my, one of my first like, like really good crops I knew like I had something going and that, that allowed me to like kind of take a step away from that Cloneville job and like just really focus and commit to that. And that's kind of when I realized like I had a little something going that I was like, 
super grateful for and just wanted to continue building. I've seen it kind of developed over time. Yeah. And now you have a little kind of flame. Yeah. It has like a name to it. Flame Boy. Yeah. Yeah, From World Industries. Just a little throw off of like the old World Industries 1990s skateboard brand. Because I used to, like I grew up skating and scootering and biking and doing all that stuff. So I feel like it's a little bit of a nostalgic kind of feel. I don't know how wrong with it. I'll rock, you know, maybe I'll change it up in a little bit, but um, for now everyone seems to like it. So just kind of rolling with it. What I find this interesting and cool is that you have like changed your stuff up. So like all the stuff you have out now is mostly like this Halloween drop, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so like it all, you went all orange versus, yeah, I don't remember exactly what yeah was it red the red yeah i was like more red red and black yeah yeah that's cool so do you think you're going to continue doing stuff like that yeah I, I was thinking about it for the christmas like we're talking right now a little before christmas coming up and like i was thinking about maybe doing a little theme like that but we'll see i'm not a huge like jar label like changer like changing up the, that thing i'm kind of more of just simplicity on the jar but i knew for ha- halloween i had to I had to do a little orange vibe. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's cool because it's subtle and it yeah. was like orange. Yeah, and- I was like, it's subtle, but it's also not like straight up Halloween because I know like the drops on Halloween, they're still going to be smoking the hash like plenty after Halloween. I wanted it to be like still, you know, not like, oh, it's Halloween, it's November, but you know, not really. <laughs> so let's talk about side wraps real quick because it's interesting. Now they're seemingly a thing and yeah. they're real present in the market uh-huh. and I think people like them totally and I think SoCal has definitely its own market and vibe yeah. so what are you seeing with that or do you plan to get it on it um yeah the side wraps are definitely cool I think you know they're not for everybody there's plenty of brands that like more brands definitely use them than don't I feel like it's just not really my style to have a full side wrap at this time, maybe I'll maybe I'll change my mind in a little while. But um, not to say that like I don't like them. I think they're super dope. I, I have a couple homies that I think their artwork on them is like super cool, and it's actually made me like really consider it. But um, I'm just gonna do a small little like side seal thing instead, just because I like I said I like that simplicity. At the end of the day, like packaging is very important, but like what's in the jar is the main thing that's, you know, the main um, thing of relevance and importance. So as long as that is the main focus and is always on point, like the packaging is like, you know, come second kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You told me being single source and so many more people coming online, let's call it. Yeah. It's getting harder to kind of stand out. For sure. So how do you keep a balance between focusing on the product or what's in the jar, like you said? I think that just goes back to like genetics, just like kind of just focusing on that. You know, labeling and artwork is super cool, but like then that, and it's also appealing, but I think what's more appealing is like the strain. So like, as long as that's always fresh, new, and there's always new new things coming out and I'm always working on that. Like I'd rather focus on that a little more than, you know, trying to create a new design every time I, but I, I plan on working with maybe hopefully in the future, working and doing a couple of collabs with some companies that are 
more into that type of thing. Maybe just like them having having my material uh, like collab like that, my material, their their attraction. So cool, man. Well, Cameron, I really appreciate you having me over, hanging out the resin. Totally. I'll start winding it now. Now I'll just ask some questions kind of all over the place. You mentioned to me that you've had successful partnerships, let's call them, with people, mm-hmm. but you also had an unsuccessful partnership. And I'm always curious on people's experience, but also their suggestions to others from that learning experience. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to take the good with the bad and then everything's a learning experience, especially like I haven't been in this game for a super long time. So it's really important to, you know, learn from every every experience and just be careful and always kind of rethink things a few different times. Like I've, I'm lucky enough to really not have any partners and any like Sunfire is completely mine. It just, when sometimes you need partners in different grows and it's like projects that you take on with people. And like, sometimes it seems to be like the right project, but sometimes it's not good to partner with, you know, family or friends. And sometimes it's really what you want to look for is someone that like um, makes up where you lack. Like if you're not good at growing, find someone who's really good at growing. If you're not good at, um, you know, certain things, then find someone who is really good at the certain things and then you can make up where they lack. But if, you know, if you work with someone who's like the same as similar to you, sometimes it could not go so well. Right. So, you know, um, most people like, most people have had their fair share of um, learning experiences, but yeah, it's just all about keep on moving and just like learn with, learn by doing. <laughs> right. Do you, plan to or want to scale up and if so how do you do that yeah I definitely want to scale up a little bit it's I mean it's hard to have more demand than supply and want to serve people who want to try your product of course it's but at the same time you quality is always number one and you want to that to be you know the main priority so sometimes that can suffer when you're scaling up. And that's just the main thing that I've always kind of focused on is like, yes, I'm slowly scaling up, but cautiously and not too quickly. Cause like things can get out of control really fast, scaling up too fast. And I've seen a lot of people get in way too over, way too kind of big over their head and not have any time to themselves. And it's like, just got to be smart and cautious about all that because at the end of the day, like, especially how we're saying like the the market's more competitive than ever and your reputation is everything. So it's like, what do you want? 20 more lights or your quality to stay the same and your value to be like this, you know, to stay the same. So that's kind of like what I think and just take things slow. Not that expanding means you're going to go down in quality because that's totally not true. I believe you can totally grow fire on a scale it just takes time to and you know persistence and not rushing to like get to that and I'm, I'm not to that yet but I am slowly kind of working my way up and that's just kind of like what I've what I've taken from all of it cool yeah I mean it sounds like a good idea to yeah you know, yeah gradual growth yeah exactly
So I, we talked a little bit about selecting for hash strains and obviously you're going through these pheno hunts and what you're doing is you're selecting, you uh-huh. know, what you like. And yes. so how important do you feel that is as well to this whole thing, the brand yourself, you know, what you bring to the table is being able to have things that you like that resonate with others as well. Yeah. I think that's kind of everything is like, is having those like special things that you've worked on and that you can kind of call your own. That's what kind of, you know, makes you unique. Like, I feel like when you think of certain strains, you like associate them with certain brands. I feel like that might be kind of where the future is leaning. Like, you know, you associate Skittles with like third gen family farms and, you know, those guys. And I feel like, you know, maybe some people associate, you know, obviously like cookies with like, you know, all those guys, but eventually I think people will be known for having like their own little like hit single quotes in a way, you know, like I feel like that fuel pops cut was like my first little hit single because it was like a new strain that kind of helped get my name out there. Yeah. That's kind of like an important thing in my eyes to kind of start off on a good note. Right. Yeah. It's also interesting, this kind of synergistic thing where like you're that fuel pops. Yeah. Gave you or Otter Pops? Um, fuel Pops, Jet that, Fuel Otter Pops. Yeah, that Jet Fuel Otter Pops kind of gave you that. Let's call it hit, right? Yeah, yeah. But it also highlighted Evermore's work. Exactly, and right? that's and so, so it's cool. Like both, it's, both of you are kind of exactly. showcasing yeah. something. Yeah. From those genetics, so that's pretty cool to see. Yeah, it's definitely cool. It's like the breeders and the hash makers are like soaked on each other's work, and they 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 both benefit right. in a way. Your favorite type of terps? Favorite type of terps? I like creamy terps, like cookies and cream and like grease monkey and all those like, you know, like creamy vanilla type terps. I really love, which there's not a ton out right now. I got a new grease monkey or my grease monkey cut back though, which is very like it has a profile like that. So I'm like beyond excited to get that back in rotation. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like you said, you'll be able to make. Maybe some mixes from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the fruitier stuff. Yes. Subtle or loud on terpenes? Loud. I like loud terps. What do you foresee in the future for yourself and for your brand? I foresee in the future just longevity and consistency and diversity with genetics and just keeping and also consistency with the same ones that I have found and just kind of keeping that same vibe and same style of like, you know, veganic indoor and sun grown resin, you know, I've always been like, I was a consumer first. So I, I feel like I have a fairly compassionate wholesale rate. It just makes me feel like good because it's better for the end consumer. And it just is like, I, I want to continue that compassionate aspect as well. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can respect that for sure. A breeder's work who you'd like to work with? Breeder's work who I'd like to work with. Um, or a breeder you'd like to work with? Yeah, no, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I think I'd like to try, I honestly haven't tried any of Masonic's gear. And I know people, there's a lot to say about Masonic, but the, uh, I'd love to try some, like just some Wilson Cross or something like that in the future. Just He's got a lot of crosses to that Wilson. So it'd be cool to choose from a couple. 
have you seen in your pheno hunts a lot of stability or any kind of intersex issues? Yeah, definitely not a, not a ton of intersex issues, but definitely a couple. You know, Hermes. I feel like there's just so many new crosses these days. You kind of have to account for a couple Herms. You know, some packs don't have any, but some might have a couple. And they, of course, the males and everything. But other than that, that's about it in terms of, you know, huge, like, variegation. A lot of the phenos have been pretty similar to what I've, like, expected in terms of, like, look. Some have shocked me with, like, profile a little bit, but not too many, so. Right. Yeah. In your opinion, is it worth running packs of seeds where you might have some instability, but also might have some keepers yes i mean in my opinion you pop a pack of seeds to find a winner i don't care if i pack 12 seeds and 11 of them are herms and that one female is amazing because i got that one female so uh people like i've never been someone that gets mad about it but like people have definitely you know some people get very upset there's a hermie in my pack bro (laughs) so (laughs) but not me (laughs) Last question on her is, have you seen different degrees of intersex traits? A little bit, but not too much. Yeah, like some, I'll be like a pollen sack here and there, like a very small like level. I believe it's like four herm where it's like not many at all. You could like remove them and the plants would be fine. And there's some where it's full plants, like pollen sacks and female flowers. And like, you got to remove those or else the whole greenie is going to be pollinated or the whole room's going to be pollinated. So, right. yeah, I guess I have seen a little bit of little bit of variegation in that. <laughs> you answered this earlier. I was going to ask Mel or Rosin. I'm pretty sure you had said you prefer to smoke Mel. Uh, yes. And can you give us the why? It's just a little cleaner, uh, smoother on my lungs. I have, I've had a little bit of asthma my whole life, so... It just really goes down a lot smoother. Not that rosin doesn't, but like I could take, you know, a lot more melt dabs than I can rosin dabs like in the same day, which is just kind of nice because get a little more stony. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Oh, that's always interesting yeah. to hear people's experience. Your favorite three hash brands outside of your own? Favorite three hash brands outside of my own. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm a big fan of Trilogy 710. I've got a lot of respect for West Coast Alchemy. Those guys produce a lot of consistency and beautiful looking resin. They work with a lot of people, a lot of farms I look up to. And then I love Mother Rock Botanicals. I haven't tried any of their resin, but like um, great vibes and like great style of growing. And just I can already tell that their stuff is really fire and very how could you not want the Hawaiian sun-grown herbs, you know? <laughs> no, so, I, I as agree. a sun-grown fan, you know, it's like, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I attest their stuff is fire. Yeah, for sure. that's nice. Yeah, so, well, cool, man. Last question. Mm-hmm. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on the podcast, who would it be? Yeah, I think it'd be cool to hear from uh, Jay Plant Speaker up in, I believe, Oregon. He just seems like a really down-to-earth, knowledgeable guy who uh, has a lot of like greenhouse experience under his belt. So I think that's someone I'd like to see on here. Cool. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. See if we can make it happen. Sweet. Well, Cameron, again, I'm super appreciative of your time, man. Thanks for being such a good host. Of course. Uh, Again, you can follow him 
on Instagram at Sunfire Farms or on his personal account at Cannabis.cam. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we sign Um, off? No, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. It's been a huge honor to be on with so many people that you've interviewed that I have looked up to for so long. So just thanks for making the trip out and uh, chatting it up and smoking with me today. (laughs) Yeah, man, it was my pleasure. (laughs) I, I appreciate you again. And I appreciate you all for hanging out with us and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.